Once you've marked hymn number eight, as Brother Eddie has asked us to do, might we briefly remark from the second chapter of the Colossian letter how that in fact all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found in Christ. Isn't it a glorious thought that we could come together today to pay homage and reverence to the very one who purchased us from the devil's hell and made it possible for us to enjoy the abundant life here, John 10, verse 10, and to look forward to being with him forevermore. The blessed text of Revelation 22, where the tree of life should be ours in abundance thereto. Over the past several weeks, we have been studying characteristics of the church. For some eight lessons now in the series, we have focused attention on seeking to better understand that blessed organization, the very one whose comments and brief remarks we might make as follows. We learned that that very church was perfect in its design, that its structure, inasmuch as founded by the God of heaven revealed through the Holy Spirit, was absolutely flawless. But what's more, we noticed it was purchased and established in undenominational greatness. To say all of that gives us a pristine view toward that blessed organization, the one and only body of Christ, the kingdom of God on earth. Throughout that series of lessons, we did come to appreciate that it began at a very specific time, the first Pentecost following the resurrection of our Savior, and furthermore in a specific place, the city of Jerusalem in the year AD 30. All of that helps us focus attention on the fact that that one body is in fact one we should so strongly desire to uphold, to be a part of, to encourage its good programs and works, which are evangelism, benevolence, and edification. And most recently, we then came to understand its leadership, those elders and those deacons who serve and work in that body. But today, as we consider yet another lesson in this consideration of the church, might I ask you to think with me over the next few moments about its worship. I suspect that if you were to poll 100 people at random and ask them to name the first thing that comes into your mind when I mention the word church, in not a few, the word that would come to their mind would be the word worship. It is seemingly understood and recognized by so many individuals that the church and worship go hand in hand. Might we then fairly say the church is understood to be a worshiping body? And there is scriptural reason for that. And so over the next few moments, I would invite you to take with me a journey through the sacred word of God as we let God talk to us about what worship is, what worship is not, and so that we may worship him pleasingly and acceptably and in a way that would bring proper reverence and glory to his name. To do that, let me begin by asserting that we'll first consider a definition or two, strive to better understand the word worship, and once that's done, then to make some remarks about the character of what worship is and also what it isn't. The word worship occurs 198 times in the King James Version of the Bible. That number coming both comprised of Old and New Testament sets before us first and foremost the reality of the importance of worship. In the Old Testament, the word in Hebrew that is primarily translated worship is the word shakah. And that word simply means as follows, as I've indicated on the wall to my left. That word shakah simply has reference to, do reverence to, or to fall prostrate before. 
And thus in the days of the Old Testament, when, say, David so often made mention of the concept of worship, he was referring to the fact of falling open and prostrate before God and doing that which was reverent toward his, toward his name. As we come to the New Testament, the Greek word that is so often translated worship is the word proskuneo. As you can see, it means to kiss the hand toward. It means to do reverence to. We can begin to appreciate then that these references to the word worship are very meaningful indeed, not the least of which because they occur so often, but because of these definitions, the very meaning of the term. Doesn't it seem to easily have reference to having the utmost respect for, to do obeisance to, to do reverence to? It is not a light matter then to worship in a proper fashion. To say all of that perhaps leads me to direct your attention to the very first occurrence of the word worship in the New Testament. It occurs in the second chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. In Matthew chapter 2, verse number 2, we have the first mention of that word, and in the American Standard Translation of the Bible, there's a footnote that is exceedingly important. That footnote now is simply a definition from the Greek of what that word worship means. Let me direct your mind to it. That footnote then simply reads as follows. Worship involves and denotes an act of reverence, whether paid to the creature or to the creator. Note that again. Acts of reverence, whether paid to the creature or to the creator. Now what we immediately conclude and note from that is that there are some instances, for instance in Matthew, where that word is used in a way where men say worship to other men. Now the Bible doesn't condone that, of course. But notice, for you and I, and I in our study, the word worship then means acts of reverence paid to God. That very definition, and that alone, has with it several worthy remarks. I'd ask you to note a few of them with me. What is involved in that? I've listed them there on the wall beginning with that first one. Notice with me this. Worship involves and consists of acts. A-C-T-S. Mankind in his devices and in his own ideas throughout the ages has quite often asserted that worship is nothing more than a feeling or some type of emotional response. It is not so. Worship involves a specified act or set of acts involved in reverence to God. It is not merely a feeling. It is not merely an emotional response. It is not merely what one may perceive or feel. In fact, recall with me as early as Genesis 22 verse 5. In the days of the long ago, after the blessed son of promise Isaac was born to Abraham, God gave commandment, you take that little boy out to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And on that journey, it's such a touching scene when, in fact, Isaac asked, Dad, Father, we have the wood, we have the other implements and instruments needed, but where is the sacrifice? In response to that, at the very close of the verse, Notice that Abraham told those servants, tarry here while the boy and I go yonder to worship. Isn't it interesting? Abraham wasn't worshiping on the way to Mount Moriah. He would worship when he arrived there. Worship, you see, involves acts. In Acts 8, verse 27, 
in that interesting text of the New Testament when that eunuch, that nobleman from Ethiopia was returning back homeward? Isn't it significant that when Philip joined himself to him, an interesting thought there occurred. He himself made note that I have been to Jerusalem to worship. He wasn't worshiping on the chariot in the return trip homeward. It occurred while he was there present at the specified location and at the place and to do those acts that God had commanded. We thus appreciate then that worship involves acts. But note with me the second remark too. Not just any act. Acts of reverence directed to God. Consider and pause with me then to think of this. These acts of reverence are such that they should be directed to the very one who's the audience of that worship. They aren't directed to me or you. They aren't directed to any other human in the audience. They're acts of reverence directed to His great and almighty name. In fact, consider a few passages that challenge us on that point. Not the least of which, and first may well be the seventh verse of Psalm 89. Where there we read, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Or the Lord's famous words when there in Matthew 4 verse 10 he said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. A very exclusive but powerful connection, isn't it? In regard to those acts of worship must be directed to the very one who is the audience of them. One last time, maybe, just so that we forget it not. In the closing chapter in all of God's Word, Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, notice that there as John was so overcome with greatness at the thought of what had just been revealed to him, he fell prostrate before the angel that revealed it. John was prepared to worship the angel when in fact in response the angel said, See thou do it not, worship God. Even angels are not worthy to be worshipped, but God is. And those acts of reverence should be directed then to Him. But what's more, that directly has as consequence the fact that worship itself is not for the purpose of you and me per se. And I've stated that in the words that it's not to be centered on man. When you and I come together and offer worship to God, He is the audience. He is the one to receive that worship. We do not worship for the benefit, per se, of giving glory or honor to me or to another man or to even a group of men. Worship, then, should not be centered on men. That is one of the critical ideas, isn't it, about worship? To remove you and me from central place in it and recognize that we are in the audience. God is on the stage. He is the one to be worshiped. But in the fourth place, in addition to that, note also that it can easily be said that worship then is not a time of entertainment. Sometimes we easily can find ourselves in the point of thinking that it should be. For after all, we see on television, we live in a world that is entertainment crazy. In fact, it is so easily understood to be so. We have at our disposal movies and athletics and ball games. We have every kind of connection with telephones and movies. We live in a world in which entertainment is very significant and important. And some think that worship should be so too. 
Perhaps on TV you have seen the display and the telecast of various worship services where large numbers will come together and it is orchestrated in such a way to make it a time basically of entertainment. But notice again, God is the subject of worship. He's the one that receives it. It's not you and me. Remember in James 4 verse 4 that the inspired writer there said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We make a dire mistake if we then pattern and organize our worship just to make it a time of entertainment. God will be entertained, if you will, when we worship in spirit and in truth, as was read in our hearing just a moment ago from John 4 verse 24. But notice also Paul's famous statement in Galatians 1 verse 10. There did not Paul directly say, If I myself would serve Christ, I must not be the pleaser of men. If you and I purposely design our worship so that it simply is entertaining, we make a grand mistake. It's fascinating to think about the way that worship is often presented and discussed. But note that inasmuch as it's not a time of entertainment, it's also true that it's not specific purpose is to make the worshiper feel good. We live in an age when it is rather taboo in many circles to do anything in worship that would tend to make a person feel guilty. And so the preacher is told, don't preach on hell, don't preach on the judgment, don't preach on divorce and remarriage. That might offend someone. That might make them feel uncomfortable. Brethren, worship is not to make you and me feel good. Now you and I, as we do that which God has commanded, it should revive within our spirit an attitude of open service to God. And as we obey that appropriately, it should make us feel good. But when we come together, if we never talk about hell, how are those in the audience who aren't right with God ever going to be prompted to repent and to obey? and to realize the love of God on their behalf to properly respond. And thus, we shouldn't just leave out subjects or other thoughts just so that we all can leave feeling good. In fact, has one worshipped if all that happens is a large number of people come together and they in fact sing and hold hands and sway with music and then leave and think that they felt good? Have they worshipped? Have they done that which God has spoken of that is worship? Remember, acts of reverence directed to God. These passages teach us and encourage us to note then that as we speak, we must speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11. Furthermore, we note then that when Paul gave instruction to Timothy, he said, You preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. That's 2, Peter, 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 4. Those thoughts tell us then that God is honored when we worship in accordance to that which He has revealed, not what our human desires and propensities and specific wishes might lead us to want. But notice yet another remark. Worship is not merely a matter of social convenience. Have you ever spoken with someone who has described, say, a worship that they have attended? In fact, it may seem a rather unusual thing. Well, they say, we came together, we meet for coffee and donuts, and then our preacher tells a story or two, perhaps a joke, and we leave. 
What kind of worship is that? Sounds like more of a social club gathering, doesn't it? The New Testament doesn't describe worship that way. Acts of reverence directed to God. As you and I then think about what is involved in worship, those acts that are in themselves discussed, I would remind you of the attention that we may well be ours from Psalm 84, verse 10. What a beautiful text. Where there we read that I had rather be in the house of God than to, for simply a day than to keep in the tents of wickedness for a thousand years. You see the recognition of what happens when we meet with God. What happens when we're able to come together and worship Him rightly, appropriately, and in accordance to His will. It's an exciting thing. It's an uplifting thing. It's an encouraging thing. But what's more, notice lastly on that particular screen, you and I, as much as we invite and desire that others may come and be with us, we are never given the liberty of altering or compromising worship just for the purpose of attracting large crowds. That's an important point. Now, throughout history, many have done that. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, God expressly told Isaiah, the words must never be changed or compromised, even if they won't hear you. You see, the Word of God is unalterable. It is unchangeable, and thus in his description of worship, that is unalterable. We do not have the delegation by God to alter it, to change it, to change what is involved in it, or to take out what God has placed in it. Worship is as God commanded it. Acts of reverence directed to him. And notice maybe one final remark. That final remark is namely this, that worship must be in truth. I suspect no one would argue the fact that worship, if it is to be right, should have spirit in it. It should be a thing that enthuses us. We should have our spirits involved in it. But our Lord said God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Two comments briefly about that text. First is the verb must. God didn't say may. The Lord didn't say could be. He said must. And thus, it is not optional with any respect and any regard. If God is to be worshipped, he must be worshipped in spirit. That means it involves our mental intent, our will, our desire. But what's more, it must be in truth. Had the Lord not stated truth, had he not included that, then perhaps one might have an opportunity to at least consider various and other things, however... Jesus used the little word and to join together two things that stand on equal footing. If one is required, so two are both. Our worship must be in truth. Given that we also read in John that God's word is truth, John 17, verse 17, that then leads us to know that the prescription for what acts are to be in worship must be found in this book. They aren't left to human devices. They aren't left to human reason. What is involved in worship must be found in the revealed will of God. Could we not then say, by way of summary, at least to this point of our lesson today, we've learned that worship is a tremendous privilege. It is an honor to fall prostrate before the God of heaven and to engage in those acts that honor His name and that lift high His holy and divine will. Furthermore, it is a grand benefit to us not as though we are the center of the worship, 
but the fact that we are aided when we worship. It helps remove from us the thoughts of selfishness. It helps remind us that there's an eternity ahead with a heaven to be gained and a hell to be avoided. Worship is a time to come together with brothers and sisters who also are intent on arriving in heaven. It lifts our mind and our eyes from the mundane world of ungodliness about us and reminds us of God's goodness and His greatness. The blessed fact that He sent His Son to save us from sin. Worship is a grand time in which we can be strengthened for our walk in this next week. But not only that, we can understand then that that worship must be in spirit and in truth. Perhaps then that leads us to the final question then, what acts are to be a part of worship? What things, what specific acts are to be done? Let me ask you to note some of the following things. And first is this. God and His will has authorized but a fairly limited set of activities that are to be a part of worship. These acts can be specifically stated to be five. Let us, in fact, reflect briefly upon them. I've listed them in no particular order, but notice that prayer. We have already prayed this morning. As such, we have cast our burdens and our cares upon God, but we've also beseeched His aid. We have prayed for His guidance. We have earnestly desired that He be with us through the course of this worship and even through the course of the week as we strive to walk with Him. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul, in fact, expressly there in the context of worship states that prayer should be a part of it. He noted that it's appropriate to pray that we could lead a quiet and peaceable life with all godliness and honesty. To that extent, we prayed for our political leaders that they may, in appropriateness and rightness, turn to this book as they make their decisions and as they enact those laws that would be proper and right for a person to live in pursuit of the will of God. We notice the Bible authorizes prayer as a part of worship. But isn't it interesting to consider the power that's latent in prayer? Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We as Christians realize that our prayers ascend far higher than that roof. They, in fact, reverberate in the halls of heaven for they are described in Revelation 5 as being a sweet incense that comes up before the very God who hears our prayers. Did not Peter say in 1 Peter 3, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. God's ears open unto our prayers. And thus in worship, how exciting it is to be able to pray to the very God of the whole universe who hears and who acknowledges and who will respond. But not only prayer. Notice also that the contribution is listed. We notice in the New Testament that in 1 Corinthians 16 as well as 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul expressly said that when you come together on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay by him as God has prospered him. And thus we too in a few moments will take a collection, a contribution to in fact aid in the work of the Lord, to pay for the programs that this church sponsors, to carry forth the message of the gospel by way of benevolence, by way of evangelism, by way of edification. We understand that those things do require money and God has given us the means whereby we can contribute to that work. I've listed one text in the Old Testament from that one in Exodus chapter 30 where we have an interesting and ancient pattern 
where there, as the people of Israel came to the temple, they were to contribute to the upkeep of that temple. They were to contribute of their means for the propagation of the work that was to be done, at least in a pattern and in a type. Isn't that beautifully reminiscent of what you and I are able to do in the New Testament? Where we give as we've been prospered. We give for the purpose of maintaining the work of God, to propagate it forward and onward. But in addition to the collection, the contribution, notice also singing. We notice in the New Testament on several occasions the blessed reference to music as a part of worship. But the music is that of singing in every, in every regard. In Ephesians 5 verse 19 as well as Colossians 3 verse 16. In fact, in the eight references in the New Testament to music and worship, in every instance it is singing without a single exception. As one then discusses and thinks about singing, we lift up our voices. The instrument we play, if you will, is the human heart. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord to sing. Hebrews 13, 15 references it as the fruit of our lips. We thus can begin to see the importance of singing. It encourages our spirit. It lifts up the very thought of our mind as we can sing and joyfully make a melody in our heart unto God. And that singing is a beautiful thing indeed, isn't it? Even as we sing, we might recognize it in those passages and in those texts. We notice in 1 Corinthians 14 that we sing with the Spirit and with the understanding. Those words are meaningful, and as we sing them, they should be the heartfelt feelings of our mind as we indeed praise and laud the name of God, or the gospel message, or the gift of His Son, or whatever the subject of the song happens to be, to sing. We thus have noted three acts that are to be involved in worship by decree of God. But let us look at a fourth one. For you'll also notice that the observance of preaching that, of course, a study of the Word of God to come to a greater knowledge and appreciation of its blessed and divine teaching. It may well be that one of the grandest Old Testament examples is found in Nehemiah chapter 8, where there, as the people assembled before the priest whose name was Ezra, they all, in a very humble and remarkable fashion, listened as he preached until dinner time. He preached for that long a period beginning early in the morning, and in the 8th verse of that chapter, this is the reason. It says that he explained it and he gave the sense that they might understand it more clearly. Our purpose in the study of God's Word is not arbitrary. We just desire to be challenged to ever live closer to it. That may mean to remind us of what we already know. But it may mean to learn something new as a text is explained or as a concept is put forth. We notice that Paul preached wherever he went. On those missionary journeys, every city he came to, he often would make his way to the synagogue and begin to preach the good news of Jesus. He encouraged Titus and Timothy to do the same. Remember that in 1 Timothy 4, verses 14 to 16, there the words were given to Timothy, that you remain faithful to the Word and preach it to not only save yourself, but those that hear you. Preaching is important. No wonder Jesus then said in Matthew 28, verse 20, that as they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel, He said, I'll be with you all the way. And you teach what I have taught you. 
Those who preach aren't at liberty to make up their own message, to teach whatever they would personally like. They are to be bound by preaching the Word of God. If they preach anything else, they should be called on it and quickly corrected. The Word is the only thing that can save. Again, to Timothy he said, Preach the Word. In the letter to 1 Corinthians, when Paul said that they that preach the gospel are to live off the gospel, thus we see that those who preach little gospel should be quickly corrected and thus perhaps even replaced for things that are our own personal message won't get anybody to heaven. We need to speak as the oracles of God. We need to preach the blessed message no more and no less. We can't add to it. We can't take from it. And thus, as we desire that message, preaching is a part of worship. Notice those texts in which it's described. In Acts 20, verse 7, in a worship service, Paul preached until midnight. We notice the complete biblical authority for preaching is a part of worship. But then finally, the observance of the Lord's Supper. We understand that Jesus, on the very night he was betrayed, he took bread, and following that he took the cup. And as each, in each instance he gave thanks for it and then distributed it. And then he said, as by the recollection of Paul, as often as you do this, remember the Lord's death till he come. And you do proclaim the very thought of his death, burial, and resurrection. We notice again in two texts in the New Testament, Acts 20, verse 7, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33, that when they came together to break bread, one of the main reasons they'd come together was the observance of the Lord's Supper, the worship service in the first century era. Today, you and I come together and joyously in a few moments will participate in the same. That very commemoration, that eternal memorial of what happened at Calvary now about 20 centuries ago. The very thought that the Son of God shed His blood, body broken, if you will, in the sense of mutilated and tarnished and hurt and agonized. We know that no bone of His body was ever broken. That was prophesied. But can we not say that His body was so badly treated and His skin was scarred and mutilated in that way? And Jesus did say, This is remembrance of my body. And to the cup, the contents thereof, that fruit of the vine, this is reminiscent of my blood which is shed for you for the remission of many. Matthew 26, verse 28. And thus worship consists of those and nothing else. The list stops at that point. Nothing else is authorized. Is worship significant? Is it important? If we might conclude our lesson by some final remarks, consider these things that we've learned today. We have certainly been able to note that worship is a vital part of a proper relationship to God. It is acts of reverence directed to Him. And as a person, as a Christian, and eternally thankful for what God has done for him or her, worship should be a natural thing, an overflowing of a heart filled with thanksgiving to the God of heaven. As we then engage in those acts which He Himself has authorized, we gladly will partake of the Lord's Supper sing and give as we've been prospered, openly listen to his word and seek to understand it better, and we will pray, thankful unto him and ever need, needing his daily guidance. As we thus think about the worship that we engage in here from time to time, may it never be a monotonous thing. May we never in our mind allow it to become to the point of just a ritual or tradition. It's a vital and living thing that should be exciting and that which we look forward to and anticipate 
For after all, this is the first day of the week, the day our Savior rose, and as such, that day that even John called as the Lord's Day in Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10. Today, there may be one or more within the sound of my voice that has not become a Christian. You've heard about the love of God towards you. You've reached the age of knowing that, in fact, your sin are separating you from Him. But to this point, you haven't yet openly responded to His will and been baptized for the remission of your sins. As was mentioned in the announcements today, very recently three have known the goodness and have tasted the grand blessing of God in baptism. That could also be so very quickly accomplished for others for whom the need is that in your life. If we could assist you in that way today, we'd be honored and happy to help you. If, though, you have become a Christian, but you have let worship become unimportant, maybe you have forsaken the assemblies. Notice that that, too, is commanded we must never do that in Hebrews 10.25. If you need prayers to be made stronger, if you need the thoughts of others to know that you're going to make a change and that you wish to repent of those errors and sins, We'd be happy to pray with you and for you that you could be restored and that God would forgive all those sins from your life. Today, if we could be of any assistance to you in your response publicly, let us do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.